You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. It was a very unsatisfying and sad chapter in my life, and I think for a lot of people in the city when professional basketball left. And the fact that I was part of that group uh, that was responsible for the team leaving doesn't make me feel very good. And if there's something that I can do to bring it back, I'd, I'd like to do that. That's the voice of Pete Nordstrom co-president of the eponymous retailer and member of Chris Hansen's Soto Arena Investment Group, attempting to bring back the Supersonics. I am Jeff Schulman, and today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast takes a closer look at the proposal to build an NBA arena in Seattle's Soto neighborhood. You'll hear Pete Nordstrom and Wally Walker discuss their group's purpose, plan, and next steps. Their proposal has the potential to impact you and life in this city. You'll get to hear what they need from the city to proceed and what they hope a return of the Sonics will mean to you and the people of Seattle. In the previous episode of Seattle Growth Podcast, we explored what lessons from the Sonics' departure almost a decade ago can be applied to efforts to bring them back. You heard from Paul Lawrence, the lead attorney for the city of Seattle, in its trial attempting to force Clay Bennett to fulfill the obligations of the Sonics' lease in Key Arena. To understand, I think, the departure of the Sonics, you have to go back to the sale from uh, Howard Schultz and his group to Clay Bennett. At best, it was naive, but that was just one of several steps. I think the vote of the citizens of Seattle to make sure that any investment in a new stadium returned a fair market return was, if nothing else, uh, a political signal. You heard from Craig Kinzer, a member of the ownership group led by Howard Schultz that sold the team to Clay Bennett, who moved it to Oklahoma City. I'll just say what in my mind I, I thought maybe we were attempting to do was be, you know, financially successful, have a winning team, and also have players there that were role models, right? Just good people. Well, doing all three of those is very, very hard. Pete Nordstrom was also a member of the Howard Schultz ownership group. Listen as he describes what basketball has meant to him and how his experience as a team owner influences his efforts to bring the Sonics back to Seattle. I am here with Pete Nordstrom, the co-president and director at Nordstrom Inc. Uh, Pete, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, Why don't we start by having you just tell me a little bit about yourself? (laughs) Okay. Okay. so I've, I've been here professionally at Nordstrom my entire life and personally kind of my entire life too, as you might imagine. I'm a fourth generation member of the Nordstrom family. Uh, my brothers and I run the business. We've essentially had that responsibility for the last, gosh, it's been about 17 years now, 16, 17 years that uh, we've, we've had this uh, role. We worked our way up uh, in the business, started selling shoes when we were teenagers and Done a lot of different jobs here. Um, went to the University of Washington. I grew up on Mercer Island. Uh, got a family. We live on Mercer Island now. And uh, yeah, Seattle guy. And now you're part of the, the team, the Soto Arena Group, trying to bring professional basketball back to the city of Seattle. Uh, before we talk specifically about that, I want to know, what role has the sport of basketball played in your development into a successful uh, executive, business executive? That's a good question. Um, I, well, you know, I, I think about that occasionally. Quite a bit, actually, because when I was a young person, I really self-identified with being a basketball player. A lot because I'm tall. I'm, I'm six foot seven, so there almost isn't a day that goes by even now. I'm in my 50s when people ask me if I play basketball. 
which seems surprising. But, um, you know, being a tall kid and, and liking basketball and playing a lot, it just was my self-identity. Um, and and I played all the way through through college as well. I was a walk-on at the University of Washington. So uh, it's something I always really enjoyed um, and continue to as, as, a, as a fan. I I was part of the, the Sonic ownership group group previously that was led by Howard Schultz. I was part of that. And um, that was a fun thing to be involved with. And I'm, I'm still pretty close to uh, the University of Washington program, you know, mostly as a fan, but I'm a, a supporter there. What do you recall is most memorable from uh, playing basketball in the city during the time the Supersonics won the NBA championship? It just felt really super exciting. I think, you know, particularly in those days, Seattle wasn't nearly on the map to the degree it is now. And the fact that, you know, we had the best basketball team just was, I think, a big source of pride for everybody. And, and again, if you th- think about from my perspective as a teenager trying to self-identify myself with being a basketball player and what better time uh, to be than having you know that validation through what the professional team brings but you know I I think it it, in a lot of ways when you're a young person having that that pro team here helps kind of feed the dream of of what basketball is is all about in a person's life what you aspire to be and you know I I ended up in retail um, and it's been great for me but I'm pretty sure there's there's no young people, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, when you ask them what career they want in life, that they would say something like, I want to be in retail. I mean, you know, my answer at that age is I want to be a basketball player. And I think a lot of that is because this, the Sonic thing was such a positive presence in, in, in my world. And did wanting to be a basketball player help you accomplish other things that have helped you accomplish what you've done here at Nordstrom? I wouldn't say that in terms of basketball specifically, but I think sports were, are really helpful and, um, you know, creating, oh, just, you know, whether it's disciplines or, uh, I guess, motivation around how to succeed. Uh, it, you know, being able to work with and through people, having adversity, accomplishing goals, that kind of stuff, work hard, you know, particularly at least the way I was raised in, in, in played basketball is a lot of what we were able to accomplish uh, as a team was because of working hard at it and executing not just because we were the best players that naturally deserved to win every game so I, I learned a lot of valuable lessons through that and then I think the other thing is um, I, I grew up as a pretty fortunate and affluent person I guess relatively and you know the great equalizers when you're on a basketball team no one cares what your dad does for a living or anything like that you just trying to win a game and so I think that that's a really uh, a valuable experience for a young person to be on a team and get treated based on the merits of what you're contributing not all the other stuff and now you're a a part of a group attempting to bring the Sonics back Uh, why are you a part of that team well I think there's two answers to that first of all a big basketball fan and a Seattle guy so there's that but I think the other big part is it was a very unsatisfying and sad chapter in my life, and I think for a lot of people in the city when professional basketball left, and the fact that I was part of that group uh, that was responsible for the team leaving doesn't make me feel very good. And if there's something that I can do to bring it back, I'd, I'd like to do that. What was it like to be a part owner of a professional franchise? Well, I mean, to be <laughs> honest about it, it was, you know, I, I had maybe the smallest percentage of ownership of any of those 60 people, but I had the most authority because I was on the board. And on the board, we all had an equal vote. So my vote was the same as Howard Schultz's, which 
didn't seem completely fair or appropriate, you know, looking back on. So I had the best of all worlds. I mean, I was in on it in a way that I could afford, but you know, relative to others, it wasn't that much. And I was right in the thick of, you know, involved with decisions. Um, so that was a pretty good experience, you know, for me. I, I learned a ton. And, I, and the people that I got to be around, while I didn't agree with all of them, you know, most of these guys were successful people, and it was inspiring to be around them and learn about what they do. And um, Donna, I, you know, I, I hold it mostly as a really good experience with a really super unfortunate outcome. What have you learned from that experience that might help bring about a better outcome this time around, whether the outcome is better for the fans, the city, the team ownership? Well, I think we understand a lot better just the the realities of owning a team, what all that means. You know, when you get into something like that, it, for most everyone, it's a bit of a vanity project. You know, none of the people in the ownership group were making their livelihood doing this, and with the exception of Wally, who had a small ownership stake, but was also employed by the team. The rest of us were all just local business people that thought this would be an interesting and fun thing to invest in. But I, I don't think anyone thought I'm investing in this because it's the best chance for me to make a lot of money. I think there was this, I love basketball, there's this interesting civic thing I think I get to do to contribute. So that that plays into it um, a lot. But I, I think you learn more the the cold realities of what it is as an actual business. And, um, you know, making sure you're surrounding yourself with people that are like-minded in terms of what they hope to achieve through that ownership and, and kind of what they're willing to do to, to make it all happen. I, I think we went into it a little naively, as probably most ownership groups do, uh, and we were just faced with some really difficult challenges, almost kind of like a perfect storm that led to the result that it did. That was really unforeseen. I'm not sure we could have predicted any of that, but um, I guess I would hope that you know, if it all comes to pass that we're able to have a team again, that those experiences will, will serve us well. Tell me a little bit how the decision came down that the team was eventually sold. Yeah, so we had that financial problem that had no solution for it. I, you know, I think Howard and the others worked hard to try to find a solution, but it became pretty clear there was there was no way out for us. There was no alternative for us to be able to create an arena situation that would allow the team to be profitable. So if we were going to continue to own the team in Seattle, we would have to do it at a pretty significant loss. Guys would have been writing checks. And, and what I've learned is even rich guys don't like writing checks. I mean, that was just not palatable to pretty much everybody. So um, we said, well, we got to try to sell a thing. And then I know a lot of people locally thought, well, why don't they just sell it to a local person? Well, the fact is there was not one local entity that was willing to pay for it. Um, we quickly had interest from people that wanted to buy the team, but most of those people wanted to take the team and move it. So we had you know, like Larry Ellison or something down in the Bay Area and different people I said yeah we're in interested and we're going to take it and, and anytime someone said well we're going to move it we said we're not interested in that so we were hopeful a local owner would emerge and we actually we approached Steve Ballmer and others and it just you know we had people said this is kind of what we're willing to pay for it and we knew what you know obviously we'd paid for it and they were no word I mean not even close they just no one was really interested in sticking their neck out I think because people realize there was a problem here that was not solvable um so what happened with we had the Oklahoma City group come through and they said no we don't want to move it we love Seattle it's the best and um I think most of us were skeptical of that Howard uh he really wanted to believe it and I think for all the good right reasons first of all he didn't think it was going to work as it was anymore he didn't want to sell it to someone that said they were going to move it um 
and he, he believed these guys. And I'm, so it basically came down to, okay, here's a serious buyer. They want to buy it. They're willing to pay you know, the price that we need uh, for it, on and on. And uh, so it came down to a vote. And so the people on the board, nine of us, voted. And it was, I remember it clearly. It was on a, a phone call, and Howard started and said, okay, uh, I start and... I vote yes that we sell to this group, and and I don't know how he determined what order it went in. But he goes, "Okay, Pete, you're next." And I'm like, "Oh, oh man, okay." So I voted no, um, and and the reason I voted no was I, I I took a lot of stock in what Wally had to say about it, and I remember you know Wally and I talked about it, and he told the group this several times. He goes, "I just don't believe these guys. I don't believe them. They're going to move the team, and while we don't have an answer right now." I think we just got to keep going. And so I, that was my, my qualification. I said, look, I vote no, not because I have an, a solution or an answer for us, but I believe if we kind of hang in there, hopefully over the next year or so, which I think all of us could weather that storm financially, something's going to come to pass that's a better solution than this for us. Um, and then it went through and the vote happened and the vote to sell the Oklahoma City guys was five. The vote against was four. I'm not going to tell you what everyone did, but uh, you can probably guess, you know, obviously where Howard came from, Wally and I were both no votes on that. And again, I'm not trying to say anything um, derogatory about the people that voted to sell. I, I consider my friends, myself friends with a lot of those people. I got a lot of respect for Howard and I, and I don't believe he had evil intentions at all. I think his intentions were great. I just think we found ourselves in a really difficult position. Now, would I have made the decision he did? No, but that's easy for me to say. I had a lot less money in it than he did. So I, I think there's context to this that's, that's important to understand. But again, that's, that gets back to my motivation. Why do I want to be part of something, bring it back? Having lived through the, the grief of what that was, you know, I just I feel bad about it. And I know Wally does too. And I think the others that voted no, and, and even some of the ones that voted yes, can't feel great about it, kind of the way that's all worked out. So, you know, Let's move on. Let's let's find a, a different way to, to actually make it work here and, and get creative about doing that. And that's uh, what's motivating us now. So has anything else changed from the time that your group felt the need to sell to the Oklahoma City ownership um, to today? Is there something that's changed that gives us hope of a better outcome the second time around? Well, I think the prospects of being able to have an arena that works is the biggest thing. That was really the catalyst for why it sold. We in our arena situation, we were not able to generate enough revenue to make money. Um, essentially, the way the thing worked is, you know, even if we won every game, sold every hot dog in the building and T-shirt and all that stuff, we would still lose money if our payroll was something, I think, over, like, the bottom third. I mean, so our payroll was kind of in the lower third, and we had a successful, you know, attendance and all this we we couldn't make money and what was happening is you know, salaries kept escalating and so that math problem just was not going to work and a big part of it is because we didn't we couldn't generate enough revenue out of the building and it wasn't about how many seats are in the building to watch a game it's more about the footprint of what a building has to offer so you think about if you look at safeco field or something the fact that they've got uh, a, the place to have a VIP experience for the Diamond Club so they can charge a lot more money for those kind of seats. We didn't have anything like that in Keene Arena. So you had courtside seats, but there was a limit to really what you could get for those seats because you couldn't create the same amount of experiences, I think, that, that are value-add. We didn't have any parking uh, revenue. We didn't have any parking, preferred parking capabilities. Uh, we had a really hard time being able to generate revenue through any kind of merchandising stuff, whether it's food or all that. It, the footprint of that 
basic building does not allow for for any of those things and then it didn't allow for you know hockey or some of these other things to be there so it just again it was kind of a perfect storm of stuff but i the biggest difference i think from when the team was successful in the past to what happened in our watch is player salaries that escalated so much that that took the whole delta out of the profit margin and we were left with you know, how are we going to make this work? And and there was no prospects for a building. I, you know, I think it took a guy like Chris and some time and some creativity and innovation to make that seem possible again. And so when you're saying you need a, way, a footprint in an arena to get more money, some people hear that as it's going to cost too much for the everyday fan to attend these games. How do you balance the need to make enough money to keep the team here versus uh, having access to the people who could be inspired by the basketball players on the court? Well, a lot of those things we're talking about in terms of arena, they're elective things to do. So if you have a big footprint and you have food choices and options, a, a wide range of them, or merchandising options, or, or ticket pricing options and VIP situations, that doesn't necessarily mean every ticket's expensive. But I mean, if you came to a game and there was only so many choices of things to spend money on, then that, you know, that's your limited universe. I think you have a much, you broaden your universe and you just create more opportunities for people uh, to buy into it. I, I'm a, definitely a believer that sports should be an accessible thing. Uh, you know, there's, there's obviously practical limitations based on what it costs to run a profitable team, but you know, giving everybody access in some way, whether it's, you know, through reasonable ticket prices or through, you know, good TV and radio or you know, how the, the team participates in the community as good corporate citizens, community citizens or what have you, that connectivity, I think, matters a lot. And uh, we would definitely try to find ways to make sure it's it's about the community, not just some rich people. You said that one of the things you learned is that the arena is really important to the financial viability of, of owning a team. Can you comment on uh, bringing back Key Arena if the team comes back there versus the Soto Arena site? Well, we had studied that quite a bit at the time. And the fact is, if we had an answer for that at the time, the team wouldn't have left. And many of the same dynamics, if not all, exist today that existed 10 years ago, whatever it was when the, when the team left. Uh, again, the, the, the footprint wasn't there. So it wasn't like, oh, gosh, well, but it's got 15,000 seats. That's enough. That's probably true. But again, that's not the point, how many seats it is, or is it a good place to watch basketball? It is a good place to watch basketball. It's noisy, and it was, it was great. It had all those dynamics. But again, it's just a pure business. It doesn't really work. And if you look at it relative to other arenas in the NBA, it was, it's the smallest. It was the worst setup for that. So what I would say then about the viability of, of Key Arena specifically is there's, there's a couple big problems that it has. You'd have to completely renovate it and expand it. I'm not sure that that's possible. It certainly isn't probably possible for any kind of reasonable amount of money as a renovation. So you have to expand it. It's all on city property. How are they going to get the authority to do that? As you've seen here through the political process, how it impacts arenas, that's not easy to do. You know, it, it, there has to be a, a collaborative spirit that makes that happen. You know, I don't think taxpayers are really interested in funding any of this. That's kind of been proven out, too. And so who's going to pay for all this and how are they all going to make it work? And, and there's going to have to be some collaborative effort because it's city property. And, you know, how, how's that whole thing going to happen? Then I guess the last couple of things are the traffic in that area are, is terrible. I mean, I can't believe they're, you know, they complain about the traffic in terms of the Soto thing compared to the Key Arena. I mean, it's just not even close how much worse the traffic situation is there around Key Arena. And then there's you got that whole parking thing. If you remember back in the day when the Sonics were around, there was all that surface parking there in lower Queen Anne, all those diamond lots all over the place. They're not there anymore. And that's because that area's been developed and there's a lot of housing that's there and businesses and what have you. It's just 
been squeezed. So it's a completely different thing. So not only do you have to address the arena situation, which is going to be expensive and difficult, but you're going to have to address a parking thing, which, you know, expands beyond that footprint, which is going to be complicated and expensive. Someone's going to have to deal with that. And then all that traffic mitigation. Uh, to me, it just, and I think to us, it seems, well, if it's possible and someone can do it, that sounds great. Does it seem likely that's going to happen? I don't think so. Are there any other lessons from your time as a, a minority owner of the Supersonics that could help guide either the city, the fans, or the, the potential team ownership uh, going forward? Yeah, I think a lot of it just has to do with how the leadership is set up and how decision-making happens. You know, in our ownership group, it was a big group of people. It was it was 60-some-odd people. I mean, I'm sure you can confirm that. It was a lot. And within that, then there was a board, of which I was part of. I was on that board. I think there was nine people on that board, uh, you know, which obviously Howard Schultz was part of it. And and it was all camaraderie, and we, we got along fine. But um, when tough decisions have to get made, you know, then you, you learn a lot about each other. And I think that's why alignment's important. So I think if we were to do this again, we would have less people involved. And I think we'd have very clear understanding about how decisions get made. Um, that is more practical, I think, than what we try to deal with with a very large group. And then kind of the imbalance of, you know, you had the numbers, all those people. Then you had Howard who owned a big stake and then a couple others that did and I, I just think that it, there was some it's not a very professional term but some wonkiness to it how that all worked answer the question for me is there enough money in seattle to both have a small group that creates the arena and brings us a franchise given the huge price tag that steve Ballmer paid for the clippers well there's enough money if you had the right people but i'm not sure those people there's not very many of those people and i'm not sure they're interested in in investing in an arena or, or basketball I, I think it's likely that we would have outside investment i mean the fact is there's still only 30 of these whatever in the world so I, there's a lot of people interested in investing in it and i don't think that's not our biggest hold, hurdle you know i think we getting a match with someone that we're like-minded with and and we think we can be uh, a successful group together that's that's going to be more of a challenge but i think actually just getting the money won't be that difficult i think you know from an arena point of view that becomes kind of a cold business proposition but if it's good then then people will want to invest in it and i think that that you know chris has got a pretty good plan uh, for that but you know right now i think the bigger challenges are just getting an alignment with the city getting the the permits and approvals to make that all happen and then you know, we had a chicken or the egg problem, you know, that the NBA says, yeah, we're interested in coming there if you guys have an arena. And then the city council and the mayor says, we'll help you build an arena if, if you can guarantee us have a team. So I think what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to build an arena knowing that if we build it, they will come. I know it sounds like a cliche, but I, we believe that to be true. And so do you believe you actually have to build the arena to get the NBA to come or just have to have uh, all the hurdles cleared so that you could put a shovel in the, gr yep. the ground the moment you get it? Yeah, the latter. Everything... Everything has to be cleared. I mean, to the point of like having the site cleared and getting that thing ready to go. I think that that matters. And if you think of it from the NBA's, NBA's point of view, I think how many times they've had things proposed to them that probably didn't come true because a lot of it wasn't within their control. You know, city governments and what have you. You, know, you have this mayor one term, then all of a sudden that changes and the new mayor has a new perspective on it and it torpedoes the plan. So they, I think they're very reluctant to engage in anything that isn't 100% real. So do you have any concluding thoughts on the potential return of the Supersonics to the city of Seattle? Oh, yeah, I get asked that all the time. I I think it's inevitable that's going to happen eventually. The arena situation has to be solved for. I just don't think there's any way around that. And I think we have to understand the practical limitations of what a city 
is willing to do and how the private part of it has to enable it to go. Um, it requires vision. It's going to require, uh, you know, a lot of steadfast effort, which, you know, I think Chris has demonstrated a remarkable ability to do. I mean, he's a super sharp guy that's really determined. And he's in, I've been really impressed about his ability to come up with solutions. Um, so I'm, I'm really flattered to be part of that group. Um, you know, again, it's, Chris is really the leader of all that, but, you know, Wally's a super good guy and in his heart is absolutely in the right place. And, um, so, and, and he has a lot of knowledge about how these things go. So it's, it's fun working with him you know, getting Russell Wilson on board. I mean, you know, how great is that? He's a super positive guy with a lot of great things going for him. And then, you know, my, my brother's involved too. And so, you know, right now it's a really small group and it's pretty easy to get aligned on, on all that stuff. But, uh, it's it's going to be challenging, but we're hopeful. And uh, and again, if, if if it doesn't happen through us and our plan, I guess that's okay. We just want it to happen because again, at the end of all of this, I still live here. These guys still live here. We still want to have a professional basketball team. Would it be fun if we owned it? Sure. If we don't, well, that's okay. I mean, let's let's get a team. Pete, thank you very much for your time and perspective. Appreciate meeting you today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Next, join me as I sit down with Wally Walker as he gives further explanation of his group's proposal to build an NBA arena in Seattle's Soto neighborhood. I am here with Wally Walker, a player on the 1979 championship winning Sonics team, a longtime Sonics executive, and a member of the investor group that's attempting to return the Sonics back to Seattle. Uh, Wally, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, great to be here, Jeff. Thanks for joining, coming down here. My pleasure. Uh, so why don't you just start by telling me what have the Sonics meant to you personally? Well, I've had so much history in, in so many different capacities with the organization. I got traded here in 1977, played here five years, and then I was a part-time broadcaster while I was living in San Francisco from 92 to 94. I did the color on the broadcasts. Uh, so I was commuting back and forth and on the road with the team, although I didn't do all the games I couldn't. I actually had a, had a real job. Uh, and then 1994 became the general manager. So uh, when you, you put it all together, 19 years, uh, a good chunk of my adult life, uh, with the, with that organization, with the Sonics, which I loved. And yeah, talk more a little bit more about the feelings of being a part of that and, and those different capacities that you've had. It uh, was a fantastic ride. And if you go way back, and, and the older Sonic fans will remember, in 1977, that team started 2-10. and 10. I got traded here. The team was 2-10, and 10, the worst in the NBA. I helped lead us to 3-7 and seven, uh, over, the, over the next 10 games. And then Lenny Wilkins took over as a coach. So we go from 5-17, and 17, the worst in the NBA, to a complete turnaround within the season with the same personnel and go to the NBA Finals. In fact, we're up 3-2 against the, the Washington Bullets. Uh, we lose Game 6 in Washington, come back. We have Game 7 here. The parade's already planned. And we lose a very close Game 7 here in the old Coliseum, what's now Key Arena. Uh, we still had the parade, but then we came back the next year, won the championship with the, basically the, the same personnel. And what was that feeling like? Well, it's over the moon. It's, uh, I mean, you come home. You, you, we win it in Washington. Uh, very little sleep. You, you come home, you get off the plane, and there are thousands of people that are greet you on the tarmac uh, at the airport. And then you, you get home, and you, you plan for the parade the next day. So, I mean, it's surreal. I mean, it's crazy. To, you, you go through that, and the outpouring of emotion, of course, that was the you know, just the first NBA championship in this town. It was the first major sports championship in, in, in this town. And uh, I've certainly talked to a lot of people still say, you know, I'll never forget it. 
the, the gentleman, uh, uh, Mr. Wright, who ran Cairo at the time, keeps on his wall, Cairo, the TV station, Channel 7, because they broadcast the game, the, uh, the ratings. There's actually a graph of the ratings. 90% of the houses in King County were watching the championship game. Well, it will never happen again. That will never be equal or even close because people have different interests and you have cable. And But I was struck by that. That's how intense the interest was here in this town. So you went from over the moon and then fast forward a couple decades later and the city settles the lawsuit and it becomes official that the Sonics would leave. When you found out that news, what went through your mind? Oh, I, I was stunned, shocked. I get a chill just thinking about it now because I remember a day in July when I heard that news. That was a bad day. And now fast forward to today, and you are a part of a, an effort to bring the Sonics back. What's motivating you to be a part of this effort? Well, just uh, love for the, the Sonics as a brand and for what it's done for this community. I, I've had a unique opportunity to observe what, what the team and the NBA have done for this community in terms of bringing people together. We had, a, we had data back uh, 15 years ago when we were trying to get a remodel done for Key Arena. And I don't remember the source, so I'll preempt a question on, on what the source was. But what the data said was the Sonics crowd was the single most diverse crowd of any gathering in Western Washington. Well, whether you're a sports fan or not, or you, you care about the NBA or you don't, you can't replace that. To get a diverse group of people together in the same building, like-minded, cheering for their hometown basketball team, you just there, there's no good alternative for it. We have other great teams here and great sports, but that Sonic, that NBA crowd, it is a diverse crowd, and that's part of why you know, we love the city. So can you give me the high-level points of your investment team's current proposal? Yeah. Uh, it's on a plot of, of land in the Soto area that's zoned for a stadium. It's ready to go. You have the parking infrastructure. You've got the traffic mitigation. That area is used to bring in 60,000 people plus in for an NFL game, big crowds for the Mariners games. And uh, it's a perfect site. I've looked at all of them in the area, uh, tried for years to get something done at Key Arena. There's not even a close second for the location of the proposed site. What we, what we propose to do is privately finance, in other words, no public money whatsoever, uh, this arena in, in that, that Soto area. It's just a two blocks south of, of Safeco. Uh, the seven acres that's required to build a world-class arena is bisected by a, a block, really an alley, of Occidental Avenue. Some people have asserted there's a lot of traffic there. There's not. They put a camera on it to watch the amount of traffic. There's just very little. Uh, we own the land uh, on both sides of that, that road, that alley, on Occidental Avenue South. And... Uh, to have enough room to build an arena, we need that street that really is just that strip of asphalt to be vacated. Uh, if the council approves that, then we can put a shovel in the ground the next day. We'll have a master use permit. Uh, we need tenants. We need NBA uh, slash NHL teams or team, one of those two. And I'm firmly convinced because I've talked to commissioners of both leagues. Uh, certainly know more people at the NBA than NHL, but... The NHL is extremely interested in this market. If we have a glide path to an arena, one that's going to be suitable for the NBA and NHL, we'll get a team very quickly. And will your group be the one, the group bringing the team, or would that you leave that for somebody else? We are happy to do whatever it takes to get the team here and the arena done. We're, we're absolutely convinced you have to have the arena plan in place. It doesn't have to be a com finished, complete arena, 
But as long as the NBA or NHL knows there's going to be an arena that's satisfactory to them, which Key Arena turned out not to be for the NBA, you know, in, in 2004-ish, the NBA said, you know, it's not working. We tried to do something. It didn't, didn't succeed at that. We want to get the arena done. We have to, that's, that's step one. Step two will be, a, you know, some kind of discussion and partnership with the NBA or N- NHL ownership group, of which we may be investors, we may not. Whoever's putting in all the money is going to make that decision. And if somebody in NBA franchise is now probably a billion dollars, we have means and resources with our group. But I, I would say there's not a billion dollars to, to buy an NBA franchise there. So the same question came up around the money in 2013 when our group you know, nearly bought and, and moved to Sacramento Kings here. And we listen. I listen, I know. And then I introduced Steve Ballmer to Chris Hansen and was confident those two would get along, and they did, and recognized what each other could bring. And same, something similar will happen again, whether it's our group or us making an introduction or raising money somehow or folding the real estate, um, which is valuable. We've gotten lucky with that, uh, into a partnership to buy the team. Any of those are on the table. We want a solution. And if it's somewhere else, we're okay with that too. What we do know is we're five and a half years in. It's a long, slow grind. It's a hard process for these big public buildings. Even if it's not publicly financed, it's, it's a public asset. It's, it's visible. People care about it. It gets a lot of publicity. And to get through the environmental, the traffic mitigation, all the things that come with it just takes a very long time. Like I said, we're five and a half years in. So if it's another site, people have to get used to the idea that even before you can put a shovel ground some other place, it, it, it's probably that amount of time. So uh, we want it sooner rather than later. So that's why we, besides we think it's a great site, Soto is, is the right solution. And so what does your team need from the city to move forward? One thing, street vacation of Occidental Avenue, one block of Occidental Avenue South, period. And what is in it for the city to give you that and to facilitate your efforts to bring back the Sonics? We'll pay for Occidental Street, the strip of asphalt that's vacated, the one block, two lanes, and it'll be a large number, a shockingly large number, and that's okay. Uh, we know that's just the, the, the way it is. But the other thing we'll bring is tax dollars to the city and county and state every single day. Uh, we're a private enterprise uh, with the arena. You're going to have at least one or maybe two major league teams that are going to generate hundreds of millions of revenue. You get the sales tax off that. You get property tax from this private building that's going to sit there. Um, there are estimates, and people can do their own math, but it's somewhere in the range of 40 to $50 million of incremental tax revenue to the city, county, and state every year. And, and what's the city, county, and state have to put in to get that money? Zero. And so what are the risks associated with uh, vacating the street, letting your organization build an arena without knowing whether a team's coming in, without uh, being able to necessarily fund uh, the arena on your own yet at this point. Uh, sorry, not being able to fund the team. Yeah, it. well, <clears throat> there's no risk because the street won't be vacated and construction won't, won't happen unless there's a team coming. Because for the financing to work on the arena, you're going to have to have a, a primary tenant. Uh, and that is, of course, either going to be an NBA or NHL team or both. So that's there's no risk. You can you can vote to vacate the street, and if people say, well, you know, we'll vote if there's a team coming, 
Well, there will be a team coming, but let's be ready to have uh, allow a team to come when, when they want to come, not dictate, well, okay, well, we think they're coming, but it's contingent on, on some vote, but we, the vote's six months from now. Just vacate it. If the key arena process unfolds and that turns out to be a great solution, there's still no risk. But in the meantime, we're ready to go. And when a, a commitment comes from a team uh, or a league, then they can make their own decision about whether they think it's the right place, but there'll be a negotiation and it will be an easy solution. So there isn't a risk. So just yesterday, the mayor said that his preference is to work with groups that are actually going to bring a team. Are you familiar with that quote? Well, our response is there have been some questions and all we've done is spent $100 million on real estate to assemble it for an arena in the best possible location spend five years getting all the permits, all the environmental studies, have two commissions sign off on the street vacation, and no one else has invested a dime. There are people talking about investing some money to do a study. Again, we're five and a half years in, and when a a team became available, which the Sacramento Kings did in 2013, we were the bidder. No one else has stepped up, and we put $30 million at risk there, which we lost. We we did it non-refundable in good faith to, to demonstrate hey, we want to buy you the Sacramento Kings. Again, there's a lot of talk, and people, because it's a high-profile, interesting issue, people want to act like they're going to be an owner or do something. Great. You go. But who's actually done something? Well, our group has. And we're going to continue to do it. There'll be probably another partner or two as, as the, or, or more, but it's better with a small group. Uh, as the process unfolds, but you know, we can do this. We're ready, and with uh, whatever politician, uh, and this is specific to the mayor, this could be a huge political win for whomever is in office and uh, been a tenant at Key Arena for 11 years. Uh, it, it's a wonderful legacy of this town. It's challenging as a site for an arena. You've got a proven site for an arena in Soto, so to not pursue that when it's privately financed uh, is, is a mystery to me. Are there any other benefits to the city that are unique to your pro- proposed location that you haven't touched upon already? Well, I think everyone knows that uh, we're really transparent. We want everyone to know what the advantages are. Um, we want to know, we, for people to know what we've done to get it ready. Uh, we want them to know what we've done to help mitigate the traffic. Um, it's amusing that people want to complain about traffic in Soto. There's traffic everywhere here, but you don't have any better transportation hub in this whole region, in that Soto area, for what it was built to, for, for 67,000 people to come to a Seahawks game and for parking. So it's by far the best site uh, uh, in the area. And again, just based on my vantage point of trying to get an arena deal done here, I've looked at all of them, be, be Bellevue or Tuckwiller are names that, that come up. Uh, so it, it's known, it, it works, uh, It would that area would just get better and better. And Listen, I go back so far that when I played for the Sonics, we played in the Kingdom. All four teams played in the same building in Soto. So people say, what about scheduling? What about you know the, the port and traffic? Well, wait a minute. We had most of a decade when all four teams were not just in Soto. They were in the same building, and we figured it out. Sonics won the championship when we were playing in, in the Kingdom. So there's a history there. I, I just don't buy the fact that, that more events – Another building there is, is going to be a hardship for, for anybody. And so what have you learned in watching the events that unfolded in the Sonics' departure uh, that can help 
bring about better outcomes if and when the Sonics return? Well, we know for sure, and this was a, a battle that was ongoing with the, the key arena where the Sonics played for a dozen years. Uh, if you don't have the right arena and it can't generate the economics that your competitors do with their building, it's going to be a tough uphill slog, and that's what we had. The, the, the key arena worked really well for about five years, and then the economics of both the league and what that building could produce were relatively poor. What that mean, means was if we sold out every ticket to every game, even at an average NBA ticket price, our ticket revenue would still be would have been substantially below the NBA average. And we did play to, to near capacity. So it wasn't that. It just the, the key arena was 375,000 square feet, give or take, because that's close. The average arena is, you know, even on the smaller ones are almost twice that size. There's something much bigger. But you don't need 2X, 3X. You need another couple hundred thousand square feet for sure, maybe 300,000 extra square feet. So that you can provide your fans and the people that are willing to pay for the high-price amenities and what comes with that to an experience that they're willing to pay for. And Kyrene at its size did not enable that. So the lesson for me, and I think for all of us, this community is, when we do it again, uh, let's do it right so we're, we're not up against that again. Any concluding thoughts on the potential return of the Sonics, what you think it would mean to you personally or the city uh, as a whole? I just want to go to some games. I, I, I don't, I'm not looking to do anything other than be a fan and uh, not know too much about what's going on. So it would be such a cathartic event. There's so many diehard Sonic fans that bled green and gold and just... You know, I'm downtown every day because here we are, we're sitting in my office. And every day somebody says something about, you know, one of the Sonics coming back or can't wait. It, it would just be such a, a, a great experience for our city. And again, I would argue whether someone's a sports fan or an NBA fan or not, the fact that the team is coming back would be a, just a, a great marker for, you know, who we are as a city and how we've grown and, and how we've learned. Well, I thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate meeting you and hearing your perspective. Thank you very much. That is all for today's episode. Have an opinion to share about the proposal to bring the Sonics back? Reach out to me on Twitter, at Prof Shulman. I'm eager to hear your perspective. Stay tuned next week to hear why the Port of Seattle opposes the street vacation that could pave the way for the Soto Arena construction and a return of the Sonics. You will hear from Port of Seattle Commissioner John Creighton. It has been interesting because I am a big sports fan. Uh, sportscasters on local radio who I love to listen to are demonizing me for the position I'm taking. And, you know, that's fair enough. But I do think um, we want to work with the region to make sure that, you know, we can have things like bring the Sonics back to town while maintaining a competitive port. You will also hear from Dave Gehring, Executive Director of the Manufacturing and Industrial Council cultural value of all this, the excitement, would that be any different to people if the Sonics were located in Bellevue? Is, is there a reason absolutely everything has to go into Seattle and it's having a very hard time accommodating the existing traffic levels in every neighborhood? And so is it always an answer in Seattle, well, we're just going to pour more activity into here? I don't know. I think that might be an unrealistic expectation. Unlike what you read in newspapers or hear on the radio, you will get in-depth interviews to hear not only what they're thinking, but why they are thinking it. Next week's episode will allow you to develop an informed opinion about whether city council should approve the Occidental Street Vacation. Be sure to subscribe to the Seattle Growth Podcast on iTunes. 
Still to come in this season are interviews with Lenny Wilkins, Slick Watts, city leaders, business leaders, academic experts, and more. You will not want to miss a single episode as we explore how a return of the Sonics would affect you and life in this city. Covering everything from community, real estate, traffic, jobs, taxes, and more. I'm Jeff Shulman, and I thank you for joining me on this journey in the second season of Seattle Growth Podcast.